welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, all alone today uh, because John is still, again, working on his book. If you are interested in the book, well, we'll get to that in a second. But first, our guests this week are doctors Joseph Lau and Jason Young. They are authors of the new book, Resistance to Belief Change. This is one of my favorite interviews I've gotten to do. These guys are very, very smart. Here they are talking about how when we establish our belief system, uh, it becomes so ingrained in our minds that we literally ignore, literally ignore, our brain ignores contrary information. So this is them explaining why that happens. And so we, we focus on what we think is important based on our past experiences and what we believe. But then in the book, we talk about how we also don't see, literally don't see information that is not part of our belief system. There's also a biological pressure in the sense that our mind, like the rest of our body, is almost an informa- a, uh, energy efficiency expert. Mm-hmm. And we try to minimize the amount of energy we have to expend. Energy, if we're confronted with a belief that contradicts something we already hold, that's going to demand a lot of attention and a lot of effort, cognitive effort and heavy thinking on our part mm. to try to figure out what to do with it. So instead, we take the easy route, just like we do physically. We'd rather come up with some way that, that that's going to be much simpler and less energy taxing. Right. And quite often, that, that's in the form of just coasting with the belief we already hold and just letting the rest of the information slide by. So, and as you noted earlier, there's also evidence suggesting that it's easier to form a belief than change a belief. Pretty fascinating stuff. I think you guys will like the whole interview. Uh, they, they talk, and when I say beliefs, I don't just, you know, I'm talking about everything that you believe to be true, whether it's... Uh, whether it's political, personal, religious, whatever that element is, uh, how we become so ingrained in our belief systems that we that we ignore information, we 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 are resistant to uh, reevaluating it. So it's it's a pretty fascinating uh, interview about. I mean, they're fascinating people talking about uh, about understanding why we believe the things that we do and how habits in our brain are formed. I hope you like it. Uh, first, real fast, just a couple of bookkeeping things. Like I said, John is not here right now because he is working on finishing the book, Relentless. If you want more information about that, you can click on Tesh.com, sign up for our newsletter, get all kinds of information about uh, upcoming events. Also, we are on the road right now, so check us out at TeshMusic.com to see if we're going to be in a city near you anytime soon. You come see us live. Uh, come say hi, shake our hands. We always hang out after the show and try to talk to everybody that waits. So, uh, yeah, great way to, uh, to, to show up and, and, and show your support of the podcast and all that stuff. So we really appreciate that if you check that out. Uh, also, we have a whole store going on for all of John's music and, and all that. You can click the link to that in the show notes. Uh, but I guess that's kind of it. Check out Tesh Music. And here is my interview with Drs. Joseph Lau and Jason Young. Thank you guys so much for being here. I have Dr. Joseph Lau and Dr. J. Doc, I'll just say Drs. Joseph Lau and Jason Young. I'll, I'll put the doctor, I'll pluralize the doctors at the top. Thank you guys so much for being a part of this show today. Your new book, Resistance to Belief Change. Uh, link to where to buy that in the show notes so you guys can check that out. But most importantly, guys, thank you for your time. Happy to be here. So, I mean, we're just going to start with, with the number one element of it. Why? Are we so resistant to changes in our own in, in beliefs about ourselves and or beliefs in general? Well, in, in general, the beliefs we have about ourselves or anything else are supported by information we get from the world around us. Mm-hmm. And so, if we look at something and it you know it looks like uh, we're looking at a red car, then the evidence in the world is consistent with our belief. Hopefully, and, and you know, we we have uh, reason to maintain that belief. Uh, the problem comes in where sometimes we uh, have evidence that is not consistent with the belief. And then the, the issue is, do we change the belief accordingly? And many times we don't. Right. 
Right. I mean, I've noticed in politics, in self-perception, in a lot of areas, once you establish, and this is the, this is sort of the corollary, this is the importance of the first impression, but the, where, where once you have decided that something is the case, then regardless of the preponderance of evidence, you are going to make, make excuses for that evidence as opposed to changing your belief system, at least in my exactly. observations. Exactly. There's a psychological concept called the confirmation bias. Yeah. And the whole, the very essence of confirmation bias is that we typically, once we have a belief in mind, we typically will seek out that information which confirms what we already believe. And we have a tendency to either ignore, overlook, or otherwise dismiss anything that might disagree with that right. belief. I mean, you see that, you see that, let's be in, in, in really fringe elements like, um, Flat Earthers. I don't know if you guys watched Behind the Curve. Great documentary about people that believe the Earth is flat. Um, mm -hmm. But it's it, but you really see that you see how they kick out information that undermines undermines what their what their core beliefs are, uh, regardless of regardless of how insane what they what they believe is. Sure. Yes. And part of the reason we're motivated to do that is we get very uncomfortable when we're asked to try to hold two beliefs that contradict each other. Mm -hmm. And that may sound obvious, but there are times when we're confronted by things like I smoke and I want to be healthy. Right. Um, <laughs> how to live of those things. Yeah. And the answer is, from any logical outside perspective, you shouldn't be able to. But of course, we know lots of smokers who think they're also healthy. We kind of learn how to change, you know, a, a psychologic dynamic in our heads so that we still have not changed either of those beliefs. The beliefs are very resistant. In addition to that, we talk in the book about how there's a part of our brain that literally makes us blind to information that doesn't consist, uh, is not comporting with our beliefs. Uh, and so the, the information's out there, but we're not noticing it. Wow. So, I mean, our brain, uh, is, it, is it physiological at that point? So our brain actually ignores that? Yes, because the, the, when we're paying attention to the world around us, there are these two general systems at work, right? One is the attention system so that we pay attention to what's important. But there's also another part in the posterior parietal lobe that blocks out information that's not relevant to whatever we're thinking about or, or looking for. And so we, we focus on what we think is important based on our past experiences and what we believe. But then in the book, we talk about how we also don't see, literally don't see information that is not part of our belief system. There's also a biological pressure in the sense that our mind, like the rest of our body, is almost an a, uh, energy efficiency expert. Mm -hmm. And we try to minimize the amount of energy we have to expend. Energy, if we're confronted with a belief that contradicts something we already hold, that's going to demand a lot of attention and a lot of effort, cognitive effort and heavy thinking on our part mm. to try to figure out what to do with it. So instead, we take the easy route, just like we do physically. We'd rather come up with some way that, that that's going to be much simpler and less energy taxing. Right. And quite often, that, that's in the form of just coasting with the belief we already hold and just letting the rest of the information slide by. So, and as you noted earlier, there's also evidence suggesting that it's easier to form a belief than change a belief. Right, right. And which, which would go under, I mean, basically, we, we're going to follow the path of least resistance, whether that's our muscles uh, finding the groove uh, in, uh, in, in exercise and finding the way that is most efficient for itself. But our brains are going to do the same thing when it comes to our opinions. Um, and again, this is this is that element of, of first impression. This is why, like, if you're if you're in business, you have to make a good first impression because once you establish the belief that you know Jason is a is a phenomenal uh, is is a phenomenal psychologist, and once that's once that's established, now uh, it, it, no matter what you end up doing, we are going to believe that from then on, and we're gonna, our brain is going to always say that that's the case. 
Absolutely. And not that it's not true. Time. Not that it's not true. Just saying. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> not that you're not a phenomenal, but I, I, I'm just, I'm just saying that our brain will then be, will cling to that belief from then on, and you've done the hardest part. Exactly. But as some of our colleagues would put it, um, unbelieving is a lot more effortful than believing. Mm. So once formed a belief, the act of actually trying to get that out of our head can be very difficult extremely difficult. And and again, that's more effort that we'd rather not expend. Also in chapter nine of our book, we talk about how when we're first learning something, it requires mm -hmm. a lot of attention. Yes. Uh, and so the, the attention part of the brain is active and the part of the brain that does that behavior, let's say you know, if you're bouncing a ball or something, is also active. But once we learn that behavior or form that belief then the attention part tends to shut off mm -hmm. and we just have the behavior beha going on more or less automatically. Right. Uh, so if we want to go back and change now, we have to reactivate the attention center. Uh -huh. which is why it's so difficult to change our beliefs once they're established. Because we, we tend to do these things automatically, and it, it's hard to keep in mind that you have to be paying attention. This sounds exactly like habits. And we, we had Charles yes. Duhigg on the show, and he's written The Power of Habit and a couple of the books about how we— how, and it's, it's exactly the same concept, where once you establish a certain behavior, uh, and once you've learned to do something at the same time every day— your brain sort of uses 10 times less energy in order to get that task done from then on and just does it. Um, essentially, exactly. our beliefs are habits then. Well, they are, but that's one component. There are other components as well because the beliefs are also part of a larger information network. And so the other beliefs we have that are related to that belief tend to help keep it in place as well. So we, But there's a reason why we like habits or why we develop these habits. We love multitasking. And the only way you can multitask is if you're doing a number of things that are minimally demanding attention from our brain, or at least most of the things are not demanding a lot of attention so we can do one additional thing. We don't, we're not always successful at that. We see the people walking down the sidewalk on their phones right. and they're trying to hold a conversation while they're walking into people. Right. So they are asking and, and they actually find that people who multitask typically de decrease the quality of everything they're doing. A hundred percent. Yes. Multitask, but that doesn't stop us from trying. But but again, it comes back to effort. If we can minimize the effort we have to put in on any one thing, we're going to go there. Is this desire to multitask? And I know we're getting a little off topic here, but is this desire to multitask? Is that uh, unique to this era in history where we are inundated with information so much? Or is it is it there's there something intrinsic in humanity that wants to multitask? I think our capacity to multitask has always been with us, but what the current environment provides us is with a technology that can provide more ways to multitask and more things to multitask than ever before. Mm. I wouldn't say that we are fundamentally different in our desire to multitask. I mean, uh, did people, when there were stagecoaches, did they try to read a book while they were in the stagecoach? Maybe they did. You know, they, they yeah. were probably trying to do multiple things. But technology didn't always allow it to be done quite as extensively. Sure, sure, sure. I think in addition to that, uh, modern advertising, for example, is more and more effective at attracting our attention. Uh, and teachers are more effective at attracting our attention. So there are a lot of different things that are pulling on us. And a lot of those things are more, again, more effective at attracting our attention, which then leads to multitasking. Mm. Yeah, so so basically, the environment we're in encourages us to multitask. I would also go go farther and say that the internet has given us so much da data and information, so that whatever our belief system is, uh, we can find information to underscore it to combat the preponderance of scientifically verifiable information. Yes, and as a psychologist, I say there are actually two key words you mentioned: encouraging, but it's also enabling. 
technology <laughs> yeah. enables us to multitask. It, it's there for us to do, but then it encourages us. This fear of missing out, this right. fear that, oh, I, I've got to check my email 20 times a day right. just because I can't. Right. Another piece of that that's relevant to what you were saying is that when we're able to search the Internet for information, it's easier to find information that is consistent with what we believe and then mm -hmm. to focus on that. Right. right. And then you find groups of people who share our beliefs and we, we you know, join those groups. And so we don't join the groups of people who have beliefs that are different from ours. And that's the, and echo, that's the echo chamber effect. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is probably one of the biggest misnomers about uh, back 15, 20, 25 years ago when the Internet was first getting underway. People thought, oh, people are going to have access to a huge range of information. We're going to become a much better educated public. Right. But in fact, what happened is, no, we're in fact seeking out the information that jives with our worldview. Right. And we're not necessarily any more willing to look at that uh, that other side. And, and so it, if anything, some people argue it's made it much worse. Um, certainly because the more evidence we come up with that supports our point of view, the more convinced we are that we're correct. Right. And just that the friends we choose have the same effect on us. Right? So that we choose friends whose views are similar to ours and reject as friends people that are very different from us. And that, yeah, and I, what I'm hearing also is it, there's a there's a study in that you guys cite in the book that is that uh, that that rich people have an exaggerated uh, uh, self self belief that they're better than everybody else, right? And it's mm -hmm. it, it seems that they, that social Darwinism element you see it in the uh, all the movies about Wall Street where you know the the world needs us we are the if if, if people could do what we do they would that all that 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 mindset. And I, and I, um, yeah, there are actually two pieces though to what's going on there. Uh, on the one hand, they absolutely hold an exaggerated belief, but that's because they are surrounding themselves by information right, right. that confirms that. And in fact, if you're wealthy enough, you're probably hiring lots of yes men and yes right, women right. who are telling you what you want to hear and saying, yes, yes, you are correct. And of course, those people who disagree with you, you're going to summarily dismiss by saying they're incompetent. Right. Uh, and, 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 you know, so it's very easy to create that world, especially if you're wealthy, you have the resources right. to buy, in effect, buy that supporting evidence. Right. Well, along with that, if you're a member of the educational elite and you're one of the 1% that gets accepted to a doctoral program at Columbia University, for example, then you can always point to that and say, well, yes, I'm superior because I'm in that top 1% and you've got right, evidence right, that's right. But then another piece of this that I think is uh, too often overlooked is the fact that it's not just these wealthy people that buy into this idea. A lot of other people do as well. For example, there was a study done some years ago where they had college students look at a videotape of a young girl, nine-year-old girl, being tested for her intelligence. Mm. And they told half the students that the girl was being tested because her parents were drug addicts and she was doing poorly in class and they were thinking about putting her in a special ed program. And they told the other half of the student that she was being tested because her parents were in the upper class, and you know, one was a doctor, one was a lawyer, and she was being tested for placement in a gifted program. Wow. And so both groups of students saw the exact same video of the girl doing that IQ test, and the group that was told she was being tested for placement in a gifted program gave her a significantly higher score than the students who thought she was being tested for wow. placement in a Wow. So, so just, just that, that seed of, again, this goes back to that, that first impression concepts. You gave those kids, those kids were given a first impression, uh, and, and then interpreted all of the ensuing data based on the lens of that first impression. Yes. I mean, well, that's, part of that's that reductive, I know, but I'm just saying. It's a stereotype. Right. Right. I'm sorry. Oh. No, no, but, but stereotypes are, by, are, are exactly what I'm talking about. They are, stereotypes are by nature reductive. 
and they are um, and you find and you find the evidence in order to support the stereotypes if you buy into it. And and again, they also save mental time for for people. If you can if you can put people into stereotypes, it's the same thing as a habit. Then you no longer have to spend the uh, the effort that it requires to understand an individual. You put them into whatever group you've organized them into, and that becomes an easier mode of operating. Exactly. Not yes. necessarily a healthy one, but easier. <laughs> right. Well, it's certainly not healthy to the people who are the targets of the stereotype right. because now they're no longer being judged on their own individual characteristics. You're just you've already prejudged them and right. are, are not paying attention to anything else they say or do, which has horrific effects, especially for job interviews and things like that. It's also not healthy for the job interviewer, or the boss who wants to hire somebody and skips over somebody who's talented just because the stereotype of that person right. is incompatible with that person being talented. Right, right, right. So, I mean, how do we, you, you guys are the experts here, how do we start to undo this? Open-mindedness is the first thing. Uh, th there needs to be a commitment to being open-minded, uh, to not just uh, accept things at face value, uh, we talk in the book about epistemic standards and how we know what's true. And a lot of it has to do with looking at reality directly instead of just jumping to conclusions about things. Mm. But, it, but, but more functionally, what needs to be done is people have to be encouraged, prodded, probably nudged to expend more effort. It all comes down to cognitive mm. effort. Mm. Not going to think carefully unless we're given a reason to do so. It's the reason why we give exams in, in college. Um, people could learn this material on their own. And, you know, right. if we were these, these super beings that we were just motivated enough to read books and all day and, and hold that knowledge, that'd be great. Most of us mere mortals aren't motivated enough to do that. So we need exams, that threat of an exam to push us to expand the cognitive effort to learn something new. Mm -hmm. So what is it that we could do that's going to confront people with uh, the instance of stereotyping that's going to make it in their interest? That's essentially going to kind of guide their hand to think more individualistically about mm -hmm. the person that you're talking to rather than just using this sort of jaundiced glass uh, uh, notion of, of a stereotype type view. And that's one of the advantages of being a social species because we have other people around us and, you know, who have different points of view and sometimes mm -hmm. can point when we're making mistakes. So, okay, so uh, again, like, I, I hear that it's gonna take a lot more effort and, and it, there's there's other elements to what you're saying. So. Uh, going back to the idea of we have colleges and exams we to to uh, force us to exert cognitive effort uh, to, for information that we could have learned on our own without the threat of the exam. But there's also in the exam a feedback loop for the individual. You know now, and then the world knows, and then you have this letter grade that is associated with the information that you have retained, right? Yes, that's and, true. And, that, that's an additional part of sort of the academic educational right. process. But there are but there's social stigma that goes along with that accomplishment. So I've exerted the cognitive effort. I actually get social feedback as well as as just direct feedback. Uh, and mm -hmm. and now I am and I also can then take that social feedback or the intrinsic element of it and and use it to apply for for further jobs and then for further study as also as a winnowing tool for other people to determine whether or not I am worth their cognitive effort to grow. Now we sure. can talk about we can talk about the um, biases that get us to the place of where college education is right now. Another time, but if we are going to start to unpack these intrinsic biases about other people in the business world and in the personal world, these stereotypes that we've been talking about, how do we create a feedback loop that is similar that will encourage people to exert that additional cognitive effort beyond just the "Hey, we should do it." 
because we say we tell people a lot hey we should do things we should eat more kale they don't necessarily do it sure but one of the best ways is by having a diverse society and, and interacting with people that are different from yourself mm-hmm. so that the more diversity you have around you uh, whether in school or your friends the, the greater variety of ideas you'll be exposed to and the greater the chances that somebody can notice if you're uh, holding a belief that's not compatible with reality right but that doesn't I mean, really work I- on the internet either Right. Well, I mean, what that speaks to is we, we tend to naturally f- uh, fall into these groups of like my like minded right, individuals. Right. And, yeah. and that just gives us the the self satisfaction. But it's almost a false satisfaction that what we believe is correct and we don't need to do any more work. Mm-hmm. And the reality mm-hmm. is there's almost always something new around the corner. It's just right. do we expend right. the effort to do it? And, and you know, so the, the test analogy I gave was really more just to prod, you know, explain what prods people on. Sure. Yes, there are things attached to exams, but that that's kind of off in a different direction from from how do you get people to think more intensively? Um, uh, and, and of course, tests are sort of the extreme version in everyday right. life. You're not going to give people a test. No. So there are other things that can be done. Um, there's an expression, state ways can change folk ways. And what that means is an, an additional source of input to get people to, to change is the government setting up structures. Mm-hmm. And it, actually, it doesn't even have to be the government. It could be a company that sets right. up a social structure that kind of continually reminds people right. that there's an alternative way of thinking. And, and, it, rewards it, and it rewards it appropriately. That that is correct. Well, that is correct. I I understood when, that you were giving me a, a basic a basic analogy. I was just baked into that are some uh, intrinsic motivators that I think we could use. And you just mentioned an example of where we people use it in order to yes. motivate people further to unpack their their stereotypes. I, I I understood what you were saying at the beginning, but I just I realized in there was some additional fruit that we could use. And and you're talking when you talk about structures and companies that that support that. That's exactly the kind of thing that I'm that I'm that I'm thinking about. Well, yeah, in terms of structures, one of the interesting things the government can do is to de- uh, desegregate schools. Mm-hmm. So when you have schools that are in a certain community and, and they're only attracting people from that community, then uh, everybody's going to that school then shares the same general set of characteristics of that community. But when you have desegregated schools that have more diversity, then you, you encourage a greater diversity of ideas as well. Mm. And then, Right, and- but we actually have moved on to a new level of resistance, though, because when we give exams, yes, there might be stigmas. The government imposes some policy like affirmative action. There's going to be pushback. Mm-hmm. So among whatever it is that we or government uh, governments or companies come up with to try to prod people to think more intensively, there will still be some resistance mm-hmm. to the fact that how dare you tell me to think that way? How dare you make me expend more effort than I naturally want to do? So that, that, you know, there's a resistance to the beliefs themselves and then there's a resistance to even the structures we might put into place to try to diminish that resistance. I mean, I understand also too, like it's a choice that we as individuals have to make to start to see other people uh, for who they are and to exert that additional effort, right? Mm -hmm. And I understand that there are policy level choices for the people that, that can control policy uh, and we can all vote on policy, but the people that can actually control policy that can be done to create these kinds of social structures that unpack our pre-held beliefs and allow us to look at things more head on, whether it's about individuals or about uh, other you know, social elements um, or societal mm-hmm. elements. But how can we as individuals in our one-on-one interactions encourage others to see us for who we are when you can tell somebody a stereotype you or already has, or has already made up their mind about you? I mean, part of the challenge is feeling 
genuinely satisfied enough with ourselves, and I don't just mean satisfied in a conceited sort of way, but feeling confident enough in ourselves that we feel we can truly reveal, for example, to other people what we genuinely believe. Um, one of the biggest obstacles socially to getting people to change is that they want to impress the people around them and they don't mm-hmm. want to lose their friends and they don't right. want to be ostracized and they don't want people talking behind their back about how strange they are. All of those things are kind of a social glue that sometimes holds people in place. So whether a person can take it upon themselves to decide, okay, today I'm going to do it differently. Okay. That's a lot of courage. That's a lot of effort or whether we might create a community you know, where the, the word is put out that, you know, be tolerant of other people um, uh, th- through various either policies, laws, government rule, uh, uh, company rules, something like that. But th- those social norms, if you will, are what often hold people to stick to what they want to believe, yeah. not just because it's what they want to hold on to, but because they think it's what everyone else expects of them. I think also uh, an important general factor here is to bring the uh, concern to public attention so that uh, the more, let's say we're talking about uh, something like racism, the more you can bring that into the public awareness and get them to think about it, the more likely you're going to be to affect change. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's also one one big issue, kind of the big elephant in the room is climate change. It's probably one of the most politically contentious issues out there now, and it is one that is confronted by tremendous resistance. It's really only political in, in the United States. Yes. Everywhere else in the world, it's not a political question. <laughs> we we are the outlier, and yeah. and you know we there are many folks for multiple reasons. They may be motivated to want to resist mm-hmm. it, uh, but there are some who would argue that that resistance is going to continue until people's livelihoods are threatened. And right. at the moment where it is incontrovertibly threatened, there's there's proof that this is because of this issue. Maybe then they'll change. Maybe they won't, but they'll certainly be aware that gee, their house is now gone. They're, they're, the front of their house is flooded, that their lawn is flooded. Um, and, and these are things that they cannot readily dismiss. It may take that to convince people that, that they have to change their beliefs. But, but the, of course, that's a Zonko explanation. You right. know, and we either not have to wait to that, that degree of sure. extremity. Sure. I often say the same thing with healthcare. That a lot of people oppose universal health care, and I'm convinced that's going to change the day that there's some new virus that comes out that's going to afflict everyone, mm-hmm. and people will recognize that they are only as healthy as their neighbor is healthy, mm-hmm. and then they will start to care that everyone has access to health care because it's not just I've got mine, you know, and, and, right. and it's your, your responsibility for getting yours. If you don't have yours, you're going to affect mine. Right. And and that, that type of but that's a very self interested type of way of looking at it, but some would argue that is what it's going to take. Well, that's consistent. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. It's also evidence suggesting that uh, there are a lot of people for whom a good argument is useless. Uh, a lot of times, people don't respond to logic or evidence; they respond to personal interests. And so, you know, as uh, Doctor Young is suggesting, uh, some people won't change their views until they find they are being harmed personally or somebody that's close to them is being harmed. And then they'll, they'll go back and say, well, maybe there's something wrong here. Let me think, maybe change after all. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think, I think Dr. Lai, you just hit on something that's, that's really important and, and similar to what, what Dr. Young was saying, which is this idea that, uh, that self-interest really is the governing element of a lot of this. Like it's, it's really hard to, we, we build stereotypes because it, we are self-interested in, in, in lowering the amount of cognitive energy that we're exerting. Um, yes. even though, even though it is clearly and historically harmful to the world around us, to society in general, and even to ourselves in the long term, in the short term, 
it is the easier path. Uh, yes. Denying, uh, denying the preponderance of evidence to overthrow your own pre-existing beliefs. Again, uh, it is the short-term, self-interested, easy path. I don't have to get these tattoos taken off my body because I've changed my beliefs. I don't have to change my Facebook status uh, or deal with the... You talked about the social glue before. Um, and I, and I, I, uh, or I have to, I have to, I don't have to deal with dissolving the social glue that's around me that sticks me in my beliefs. Uh, I wonder, this is going to sound weird. I wonder how much we should just let people do what they're going to do. Um, but focus on training our children to be less, um, to, 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 to know to exert this kind of effort. Cause I'll give you an example. There's the, I forget what book it was. I don't know if it was if it was one of the free economics books or not, but they, they talked about how kids that are told they're gifted at a young age, um, they, one of, they go down one of two paths. They either burn out really early or they create self-fulfilling prophecies, even if they weren't that gifted. Um, but basically what we tell our children has this serious impact on their lives and in how they view themselves. So I, sure, the biggest important source of beliefs in our lives is what we've learned in childhood. Right. And religious political beliefs are at the forefront of that. What right. we learn early on, we can change later on, but it's going to be a major transformation right. for us to get there. Right. So, so basically what we should be doing is, is telling our kids that it's important to open their minds up and have make individual decisions about each individual person? I mean, that's, that's uh, it? Is it that simple? Who's going to do that, though? Because, of course, children typically are raised by parents who are raising them in their own self-image. Mm -hmm. So I, I would, I mean, I think you're onto something. But I've often said, and often when people criticize the school systems and they say, oh, the teachers aren't doing their job, it's often what children learn at home, the values mm -hmm. they have about education. And the, the real cornerstone of change here is going to be getting parents to teach their children to be more open-minded. And, and the real focus of the challenge is not the kids, it's gonna be the parents. Mm -hmm. And politicians don't like to say that because they're the voters. Right. But that, that, I mean, if you were talking about a societal-wide effort to change beliefs, particularly reduce stereotypes and, and you know become more energy efficient or anything like that, ultimately you've gotta tell, and you want children to change, you're gonna to have to tell their parents to change. Mm -hmm. and, um, that, that, that's a great idea. It's just summoning up the courage to tell these people that, and especially if you're the politician who holds the reins on resources, are you going to be the one to actually say, okay, go ahead, tell them they're wrong. That's actually part of the reason I set up the parenting literacy website. So the people who go to that site can see a lot of information about child development, mm -hmm. uh, taken from scientific research. And so they can learn a lot about parenting and what they should do by going to a site like that. Yeah, I'll put a link to it. Uh, I'll put a link to your parenting literacy website in the show notes so that people can can follow up and, and see what you're talking about. Um, I, I don't I, I do want to wrap this up because I know you guys are busy and, and you have other other people to talk to. But but I also I don't want to leave on such a depressing note that like the, sure. the because what I've heard so far is that the wheels of society and the machinations of our brain are both coordinated to once we've made a decision, we just stick with it. Um and that is scary and terrifying. Uh, well, I, I really want some hope in there. Yeah, here's the uplifting part. Um, we are survivors. Uh, we, are, we are evolved social creatures, okay? And, and we, part of our, our survival mechanism is adaptation, which is change. So it is not that we won't change. I'm sorry, it's not that we can't change. It's just that more often than not, we won't change. But there are circumstances where change is going to happen. Mm -hmm. It is going to happen. 
And there are probably numerous things we could point to that show, you know, how much people have changed. You know, people are riding bikes more than ever before. Um, people, you know, people are uh, uh, doing, oh, they're drinking water out of plastic bottles less than they were several years ago. Wow. There are ways we can change people. So it's not as though everything we do that's unhealthy can't be changed. Mm -hmm. It happens. But what I often explain to my students is change happens at a glacial pace. So where sometimes we get in trouble is we think, why isn't everyone changing overnight? Why aren't right. they changing now? But with things like climate change, we're thinking we don't have the time to wait too long. Right. You know, so change is happening gradually. So there is change. It happens, you know, glacially, slowly. But yes, we can change. Can we improve ourselves through change? Yes, we can. The best thing we can do is to make sure that people appreciate that ahead of time that they're going to have to expend effort. The number one reason why people's diets fail is not because they try to go on the diet. It's that after a certain period of time, some months or, or up to a year, mm. there's a they realize this is too effortful and they start slacking off. Right. And maybe it's just one day they have a Twinkie and then suddenly a week later they're having numerous Twinkies. But this is the I'm reason on the all why Twinkie diet. I only <laughs> eat Twinkies. So. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but but this is you know people the Twinkie diet of course but but this is why they often say a year after people begin diets a sizable percentage of them will have regained the weight. It's and not that right. we can't lose weight; it's that we don't want to put in the effort because mm. no one told most people you're going you're going on uh, uh, an effort that's going to require the rest of your life. I mean the the phrase lifestyle changes is what the medical community likes to use, but what they're really saying behind that is. Get ready to start expending effort mm -hmm. for the rest of your Well, I think there's another important point here that, that comes to your question, and that is that uh, we don't need to change most of our beliefs most of the time. Most right, of our beliefs right. are just fine. Yeah. And so we, we're not in a position where we should say all change is necessarily good and not changing is always bad. Right. Sure. right? So there's a benefit to preserving our beliefs that the sky is blue, for example, you know, that there is this uh, solid. So the, we, we we're pointing to a problem in the book that uh, is important, but it, it's also to some extent overstated because mm. most of us do, and we're all growing, right? The, the children do learn and even adults learn. So it's not that we can't or we won't, but it's just that there are certain conditions where we need to be careful to uh, optimize growth. Yeah, I, I, but absolutely. And I think you, you bring up a great point there that we do, we need to acknowledge the fact that for most of us, our current beliefs are absolutely fine. But the idea is, that we need to consistently exert the necessary effort to reevaluate even the good beliefs, because if we, if because I would, we would all argue, walk around right now arguing that all my beliefs are the good beliefs, and so therefore I don't have to exert the self examination. Um, it's just, it's just encouraging and creating the sort of uh, the conditioning, the social conditioning in the world to get us to consistently reexamine our beliefs, and that's, um, and that's the part that gets a little depressing. Absolutely. The other part of it, and one of the incentives to writing this book is, and I often sometimes refer to our book as the anti-persuasion book, um, <laughs> anti-persuasion, because there, there are so many persuasive attempts that are that are thrown our way right. and that we throw right. towards other people. And we're often walking away from a situation saying, I just did a great job trying to persuade someone. Why didn't they listen? Oh, they must be thick headed. <laughs> and our book is essentially trying to unpack what that thick headedness is. It's not a negative, you know, saying that people are dumb. It's saying that people process information efficiently, but that efficiency sometimes leads them astray. How much of this is self-fulfilling prophecy for people? Like how much is this? Like, I'll give you the example. We talk about the, the study of the rich people. 
So how much of it is I'm, I, I get a little bit wealthy, so I believe that I'm better than the people around me, so that the people around me then start to believe that I'm better than they are, and so therefore I'm able to get wealthier and, and, and uh, concentrate more power around myself. How much of it is that sort of uh, that feedback loop creating the change in those people? That plays a role. But remember, there's a book by Wayne Dyer called I'll See It When I Believe It. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the things we believe literally influence the things we see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so mm-hmm. th- certainly there's a relationship between how our beliefs evolve and, and the way we see ourselves and those around us and how we see them and, and or how we see ourselves, I should say, uh, influences how they perceive us in return. Mm-hmm. So, but if you're using like, it's money sort of created as a, uh, as a lubricant for the, for the barter system, right? It's, it's a, it, it gets rid of the need for the coincidence of wants and it, it creates an intrinsic value system. So why would we not, or a, an extrinsic value system. So why would we not believe that people, why are they wrong? I guess is the question. Why are the wealthy people who believe that they're better than other people, why are they wrong? Because wouldn't the value system indicate that they are actually better by the only measurable element? I'm not saying this because I believe oh. it. I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah, if that's the only thing that matters, having more money, great. But uh, let's look at the the other things that go on. Are, mm-hmm. are they immune from lots of other problems in life? No, probably not. And, and so some of it's just them psyching themselves into believing it, of right. course. Of course, the rest of us don't have to believe it. Sometimes we do. We're watching, keeping up with the Kardashians and all those sorts of things because we think, oh, wow, this is what my life would be like. But then th- th- there's something that people tend to overlook, and that is we assume that people got where they are because of some intrinsic quality that they earned it. Uh-huh. And that people are there because they must be better than us. But there's a psychological concept, get ready, that I'm going to throw out called the fundamental attribution error. <laughs> and what attribution error is, is that when we look at someone else behave a certain way, and we try to explain why they behave that way, we tend to right off the bat assume they did it because they chose to do it. Someone who has some quality must have earned it, that that's, that that's the way it is. And what we tend to fail to appreciate are all of the external factors that may have led to them to behave that way or help them get where they are. So when these wealthy people are sort of coasting on a mythology, well, it's it's a, a social image, sometimes it's a myth, sometimes not, right. um, that everyone thinks they earned it. But the reality is, in many of the cases, uh, they, they, they may have done some hard work, but they may have also been in the right place at the right time or been in the right family at the right time. And, and so reminding people that it's not just, you know, people's efforts, but it's the environment that they're in, that those both contribute right. to explaining how someone got where they are. Now, there's another important issue there, and that is that uh, when we focus on somebody's wealth as a measure of how good a person they are, sure. that's a very restricted view. Right? There's right, obviously right, a lot right, right. of people with how much money they have. And so you may find, for example, Sunia Luther, for example, did, did research on this, where she found that a lot of children of wealthy parents are, are suffering from the same kinds of neglect as the children of uh, children uh, of parents in poverty. And that is that the parents are not paying attention to them. They're growing up more or less on their own. And so you find that there's a higher rate of, say, alcohol abuse or drug abuse mm-hmm. among the children of wealthy parents than you find among most other members of society. Right. So the, the wealthy person uh, who works, you know, uh, you know, for 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week, may be really, really good at making money and maybe doing their job, but how good are they at being parents? Right. Or how good are they being empathetic towards other people? Right. 
No, these are these are great points. No, I, I you know what? I I could I could honestly I could just pick your guys' brains about all of these little things forever. I can I can also think of one particular individual who created a mythology around himself and used that mythology to catapult him into self fulfilling prophecy. But we want to we don't want to talk. Sure, have an idea. Yes, <laughs> we, don't, we, we don't want to talk too much about that. But I could have you guys. I, will you guys come back and 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 do this some more with me as the as the book is, is out there and, and does more stuff because I I want to keep picking your brains. I think you guys are phenomenal. We'd sure. be very happy, We'd be happy to. to. All right. The the authors, Dr. Lau and Dr. Young, Dr. Joseph Lau, Dr. Jason Young. The book, Resistance to Belief Change, is in the show notes. So you guys need to check that out. And and so that we can all be more, you know, more uh, empirical in our views and how we and how we approach the world. Uh, if people want to follow up with you guys, how can they do it? Uh, they can reach me by email at uh, jla0017 at hunter.cuny.edu. I put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, in fact, I, I I could give my email address. I'm going to simply say they could contact me through the Hunter College website. So if yeah. they go to Hunter College and look up my name, they will find me. All right. And that's where you guys, most people give out their Twitter handles, but you guys are so professorial. I love it. Um, we, are, we are so pedantic. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and lastly, I ask this to everybody I have on the show. What is one thing that we can all start doing today that will make our lives a whole lot better? I'd say be more open-minded. And I would say start looking at the true reason why things are happening. Don't jump to any immediate conclusions. Do second-guess yourself, especially when you're judging other people. You guys are so on thesis. It's unbelievable. It's, you guys should be academics. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you guys so much for listening. Today's show was written and produced by myself, produced by Chrissy Wallen, and executive produced by John Tesh, as per usual. Uh, if you like the show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. We are there. It really helps us out if you rate and comment and subscribe. Also, if you like it, share it with a friend who you think needs to hear this. That helps us out a lot, too, because literally, if each one of you did that, it would double our listenership and make it so that we can keep delivering the show to you. Uh, yeah, if you would like to follow up, facebook.com slash John Tesh is where we spend most of our time. Also, at John Tesh on Twitter, at John Tesh underscore IFYL on Instagram. You can find all of those, again, links in the show notes. I am Gib Gerard. You can find me at facebook.com slash Gib Gerard, at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I try to respond to every comment, every mention, every DM, because, uh, again, we do this show for you guys, and we can't do it without you. So more than anything else, thank you guys so much for listening. <laughs>